Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And today was eventful already. I can't believe you forgot In what this. way? What, <laughs> what happened? Because we met at the coffee shop to take a okay. walk, <laughs> and I walked out, and I looked at my cup. <laughs> Yes, because I, I walked already. in and Yolando had gotten there before me and I, and he's like, hey, I saw your coffee come up. So I walked to the place and they have it like divided by names and there was only one cup the size that I ordered there. So I just grabbed it and I took the stirring sip out, stick out and I like, like whatever, sometimes... You, you put the stirring stick in your mouth so it doesn't drip all over you. Yes. And then I looked at it. And I was like, that was not my coffee. It was someone else's coffee. Whose and coffee someone else's coffee it was is literally Jesus. I stole, stole the Jesus' coffee. coffee. And I tasted it, and lo, it was sweet like honey. <laughs> so I had to go back to the barista and say, I have sinned. I am sorry. And like, we just thought it was so funny. And she was like, it's not your coffee. Give it to me. And I was like, I mean, like, she wasn't rude, but she just didn't see. I the was humor. just a whole thing. I, so it was but a whole thing. That cannot be good for your soul. So I, stealing I, the Lord's I coffee. stole Jesus's coffee and I feel bad about it, but I returned it right away and it was an accident and it settles once and for all that Jesus drinks, drinks Starbucks. Starbucks. <laughs> so all you people can stop shaming me because um, Jesus was there and I drank his coffee and it was, it really was sweet. It was, it was sweet. It was wow. sweet. <laughs> like honey. Anyway, so that's it. What is it? That's not even what's astonishing me. It should be what's astonishing it me, right? Be. Like that's it. Yeah. That's astonishes me. I stole Jesus's coffee. <laughs> what is astonishing you? On Sunday, um, the people of Dorado church are very kind and, um, sweet to me. I sat down usually, um, when I'm leading worship, I'm facing the congregation, right? And when I'm not um, leading a specific um, movement in worship, I'm on the front pew uh, because, you know, our theology is that I, I, I come out from among the people. Mm -hmm. I'm not up on a pedestal. Right? When we have members of the congregation lead, let's say, the prayers, uh, they get up out of their pew and come up front and lead mm -hmm. the prayer. And so when I'm not leading something specific, like when we're singing, I go to the front row and same, I'm among the, uh, among the people. And then right? you get to worship. Yes. And so um, on Sunday, I sat down on the front row um, after calling up a member of the church to lead us in prayer. And she prayed. And then she said, I have one announcement. And I looked up on the screen and there was an invitation for the congregation to go into the fellowship hall after worship to celebrate pastor's appreciation. And nice. yeah, it was very kind, unexpected. And apparently they called people to show up for this. Um, my wife got a call saying, Hey, we're going to do this. And, um, um, and it was just, it was just right in terms of what they did. It yeah. wasn't too extravagant. Uh, it, you know, my, my love language is ice cream and, and coffee. So they had, you know, this ice cream bar, That's really um, sweet. which was wonderful. And, um, a member of the church made a, a wonderful, um, casserole and, um, uh, gave me a Starbucks gift card. It was just right. And a younger me really hated that kind of a thing. And, and. I was re I was responding to I was reacting to what I saw in large mega churches where you know the congregation would give the pastor some extravagant gift and the pastor would be put on a what's pedestal. That, what's that video of the pastor who's yelling at his congregation because he didn't get a particular kind of watch and he's telling them like, yes. "Aren't I worth your McDonald's money? Aren't I worth your like?" It is. It is the pastor in New York. I cannot think of his name. Of was the that same, the same guy who got robbed? The same right. guy who got robbed. Yes. I mean, it yes. is just, and he's saying like, I don't even know the name of the watch he wanted, but apparently, he's wanted it for, you know, he said he asked for it in January and it was October. Yes. He hadn't got it yet. The and, money. <laughs> right, and he was, he said you could go to um, Costco and get. I mean, it just like when it comes out of a space of entitlement, it's really yes. disordered. Um, yes. And so I, I, I was reacting to that kind of thing. I, I, 
did not and do not want to be put on a pedestal. I certainly, you know, want to avoid any appearance of clergy worship. Mm-hmm. Right? But the way the saints of Dorita Church did it was just, it was just right. It was mm-hmm. ice cream, a casserole, and go get yourself some coffee. Mm-hmm. And it was enough to, it was it was simply to say, we see you. We right. appreciate the work right. that you are doing. Right. And a younger me would not have had the maturity to then also say thank you and this is about us Mm -hmm. I want to thank you for allowing me to be your pastor this is privilege I I am not a person I'm not a pastor that walks around with a woe is me Mm -hmm. um, carrying this sack of problems on my back wanting the congregation to feel sorry for me and you know don't Mm -hmm. I have it so hard no I love this work I love you Mm -hmm. I love this congregation I'm glad God has called me to do this work is it difficult yes am I tired a lot especially in this season absolutely do I want to do anything else no I love this and so I feel um, privileged uh, to be able to do this work. And so I'm, I'm just grateful for this season and for the way um, the, the Derrida Church Saints said, we we see you, we appreciate you. And it, it was just enough to mm-hmm. encourage, uh, to strengthen, because the reality is there are a lot of us who mm-hmm. are not doing well, a lot of clergy mm-hmm. who are emotionally, mentally, physically just mm-hmm. not well in this season because life right. is so difficult. Well, and I think what is interesting about this whole, um, but, but, I mean, I just feel like it hasn't always been like this idea of having a clergy appreciation month is like fairly new. I don't think it's something that has been as central as it has been yes, in this. But in the black church, yeah, um, like from the very beginning of ministry for me, 20 something years ago, there was often a time set aside, usually it was the anniversary, anniversary of yeah. my installation there, right? Mm-hmm. Where they would do some kind of appreciation. And so there's there's a long history of that. But a, an appreciation month, I think, is pretty new. And I think it's just interesting um, because I, I, I think that it's really a beautiful um, fruit of healthy community when we just take time to, I mean, just like kind of what we're doing in this astonishment moment, like taking time to notice the goodness that God has placed in the community and to celebrate with one another in significant life moments. Like there was a, um, a, there's a woman who is on the worship leadership team who um, is having a baby soon. And so that team just had a, like a really similar celebration with her just after the worship rehearsal and before worship started. And it was just a moment to say like, Hey, we see you and we are excited that this moment is happening and we love you. And, you know, so I think those moments are so beautiful when they happen and when they are um, authentic and also, you know, the, the community itself and the work itself and the call itself is the, is the gift and is the reward. And I think it can be kind of tough when I think there are a lot of pastors who, um, and members of a community who do not experience abundant life in the roles that they play in their churches throughout the year. And so then these moments end up being forced to carry even more weight. Like I feel unappreciated or unloved or unnoticed or disrespected all the time, but here's the month where people have to be nice to me. And, you know, and I think it it can function that way in a lot of churches and a lot of um, churches where there's a lot of conflict and people sort of let the pastor fight it out and like take all the shots and then they're like well we'll appreciate you during this one month and that's like really lovely but also what we need to do is have right expect do the difficult work of putting our expectations of one another in front of the lord and figuring out what right expectations actually look like and then having conversations about the parts of our community life that are are hard and seeking the lord in them and not avoiding them or trying to like um, use a, a celebratory moment as a way of, you know, because I think pastor churches do love their pastors authentically, but sometimes have gotten into a culture where the pastor, just all these expectations are heaped on the pastor that are not life-giving for the pastor or the congregation. And like this practice of buying a watch or expensive gift or whatever can be used as a way to, to sort of avoid doing that deeper work. Because I just, you know, I'm with you that for me, the gift of the journey that 
the Lord has led me on and just like, and I just want to be clear, I wasn't smart enough to choose it. I wasn't strong enough to stick with it. Like it has nothing to do with my own wisdom or commitment or any of that. It's just like pure grace of God that we've been through this journey together. And so now the gift is life and community. And I feel um, so deeply um, and holistically loved um, every, you know, all the time. <laughs> and I hope I'm at a place with the saints at Dorada Church that if next October passes right. and they choose not to do Th that's anything, okay. That, that is okay. Correct. Really, and I'm if if they had done nothing this year because I wasn't that, expecting right, right, anything. Right, right, right. Because relationally, we're fine. I love right. them. I feel loved by them. Right. So it's okay. And so if you want to do something, great. I will right. receive that, be honored and encouraged by it. But if Please you don't, do that's not okay feel too. Like it's you know, right? It's something on the calendar, like Mother's Day. You you, you got to do it. Correct, right? and that's and that's what I think is just kind of a thing, you know, the challenge when churches feel like, oh, I have to do this for our pastor. No, you don't have to you do this know. for me, because when do we have the Congregation Appreciation Day? Right? right? Like we all have a role to play in this community, and when we're in this community, and the Spirit is really leading us, then our then we're yoked to Jesus and our burden is light and easy and we, it's just all overflowing in joy. And so if there's celebrations, that's great. If there's not celebrations, that's great too. And if I feel some type of way about being celebrated or not celebrated, the, the issue isn't with the congregation, the issue is with me. Absolutely. And like, how am I understanding my call and who, where am I getting my affirmation and validation from? And is that coming from Jesus or is it coming from the feedback loop of the church so that when things are going well, I feel good. And when things are going poorly, I feel bad. Like you just can't do ministry d that way. I don't think Not without, well. well, I mean, without just burning out in a way that I just don't think Jesus calls us to do, but we have all these narratives in the culture of like heroic pastors, teachers, nurses, whatever, who just sacrifice their whole lives and their, their mental, families. emotional, spiritual health to serve this community or this um, system that is actually really, really unhealthy. And to some extent, we don't have a lot of control over how the healthcare system works or how the school system works, but we do. We are ridiculously in charge of how we treat each other within the body of Christ. And so we can look at the assumptions that we're carrying around and just examine them in a, you know, non-threatening way of like, oh, is this, is this okay? Is this, is this, does this glorify the Lord? Do, or what am I expecting of my congregation or the congregation? What am I expecting of the pastor? And is this healthy and holy? So anyway, I don't mean to be like anti-clergy appreciation, but I just, no, I but, think it's important to say there's a deeper bring, issue. Yeah, you got to bring balance to the force. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, yeah. That's great. So what is astonishing you besides stealing, stealing the Lord's coffee? coffee? Well, yes. I don't know. I guess maybe I just want to um, talk about something. Um, I mean, my the, the community at the Grove is always just a, a big gift. And it was, a, um, I mean, I, it, and we had a good Sunday. We, we have a very good Sunday. Um, but I want to just talk about something I think one of the weird hopefully good things about my mind is I often see connections between things that seem to be wholly unrelated and um, sort of looking at things that are on my you know something reminds me of something that on the appearance doesn't have anything to do with it and then I'm just sort of leaning into what's the connection and sometimes you really struggle to make a connection that's not there, <laughs> but sometimes you really see something. Um, and so I, I have been just paying attention um, and praying um, for um, the uprisings and demonstrations that are going on in Iran right now over the death of a woman named Masa Amini who was arrested by um, the morality police, which is a state, funded branch of law enforcement in Iran that is um, tasked with, I, I've been doing a lot of reading lately, so I hope I'm not confusing um, systems, but essentially with the, you know, promotion of virtue and the um, whatever, the prohibition of vice. And so um, 
these officers and they're all men are roaming the streets um, and and not equally in all places. So so more in certain more densely populated areas than another. But um, uh, but they're looking for um, vice and they're you know gonna stop it and force people to be virtuous under threat of law. And and one of, of course, the visible things that they can see is whether or not women are wearing the hijab. So in Iran, they don't have to be completely covered, um, as in some other places, but they have to wear the hijab. And this woman, um, Masa Amini, was wearing a hijab, but according to the police who arrested her, was not wearing it correctly. She was showing too much of her hair or her face. I, I don't. I don't know. But she was arrested, and then days later, she had died. And there are pictures circulating. and And the the police said she suffered some sort of fatal heart attack or um, health crisis while she was incarcerated. But of course, no one had access to her, and she doesn't have any rights. Like it's just you're arrested and you're taken away, and whatever happens to you happens to you. And but they did. Um, I guess her family got to see her when she was in intensive care and she's just covered in bruises. I mean, like she was just clearly like they just beat the hell, someone beat the hell out of her. And so the, this, these images of um, this woman who ironically is not wearing a hijab when she's lying in her hospital bed, just like hooked up to all of the breathing tubes and things and covered in bruises. And people are just this, the starkness of, not covering your head is um, dishonoring to God. I, I mean, I there's, I I don't want to speak to the theology of wearing a hijab because I am not, I, I'm not competent to do so. And I know there's lots of meaning, levels of meaning in the hijab um, wearing. And I don't have an opinion about pe- whether people should or shouldn't wear the hijab. But you know, it's this idea that it, it's it's a vice, it is dangerous, it's a threat to society if women are not wearing it properly. And yet, her then her, you know, she was she was violently beaten, and now she's dead. And so, there are uprisings all over Iran of, you know, people, you know, police coming into schools and the girls taking off their hijabs and like yelling at them to go away, and just you know, people the the brutality of this. Um, has has even and especially people who wear the hijab for religious reasons are taking it off and saying like I'm not I, I can't wear this under threat of violence like I can't this can't be about not getting beaten to death it has to be about um, like fidelity and my faith in God and so this has just been corrupted and it's this huge um, outpouring of resistance and 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 so many more people have been killed. And people, but particularly women around the world are watching this. And, and um, you know, there's just a lot of um, people feel a sort of visceral solidarity, I think, particularly women. Um, and and I'm looking at that and watching it and, and praying for that. And it just occurred to me because I also a couple days ago was reading the story, which has not made a lot of headlines, which is um, illustrative in and of itself, that there was a, um, a young teenager, a 15-year-old teenager in Mississippi named Jaheem McMillan, and he was um, shot in the head by police and died days later in intensive care. And the police have said that he had a weapon and was not obeying commands. Um, Bystanders and his family dispute that fact. Um, But it and, you know, the police were called to the scene because there were reports of a car with teenagers in it waving guns. And so they were called to the, the police were called to the scene. They saw teenagers. This young boy was shot in the head. It's being investigated. But A, I just think we need to stop and notice how normal this is for us that it just barely even makes a blip. And I think people feel like, well, if there was at least a chance that he was armed, and of course, many people think he wasn't armed, and I think there's, I don't, for me, and I'm not telling anyone else how to see things, but for me, I don't automatically trust the official police report about what is released about an officer's justification for shooting. I just don't, because I, 
I have, we've seen too many times when those things have just been shown later on to be completely fabricated. And so I don't know whether he was holding a gun or not, but I think even the idea that he might've been holding a gun for some people gives us permission to just not see this and not, not care about it and not recognize it as a tragedy. Um, but I also just think, you know, what I know for sure is, um, because this, this incident had been the phoned in, I know that whether um, Jaheim McMillan was carrying a gun or not, I know that he fit the description of the people that the police saw as a threat, the threat they were trying to neutralize. And it just, just it, it strikes me that there's a, there's a real deep similarity between like we we look at the case of Masa Amini and we think like well thank goodness here in America we don't have morality police that pull somebody off the street and beat them to death, and and we don't we don't have you know a f officers who are charged to do that work and it just strikes me that like we we actually do, and they're and they're not aimed at young women they're aimed at young men of color and the system is set up so that of course we don't say that we are shooting someone in the head because they are not performing masculinity correctly like masa amini was beaten arrested and beaten because she was not performing feminine femininity correctly right her femininity was a threat to law and order and jaheem mcmillan was shot and killed because his masculinity was perceived the way he was performing masculinity was perceived to be a threat to law and order and i just think we need to recognize that depending on who you are and the kind of body you are born into, you have very similar experiences um, with the police as um, Masa Amini and the women in Iran or Afghanistan or other places have. And we need to recognize that it's not, it's not different. We just don't see it. And you know, I have a, a friend who was telling me, um, a friend who's a black woman, and she was telling me that her black son who was 12, they were in the mall together and he was stopped by the mall police and, you know, questioned, why are you here? And what are, you know, and he had to put a bracelet on and just, just and she was grieving his first experience and his first, but certainly won't be his last of just because he is walking in a space, the body that he occupies. And if he's not wearing, you know, if his shirt isn't tucked in or if he's slouched in the wrong way or if he's holding, I mean, the the friends and family of Jaheem McMillan say he was holding his keys and a McDonald's bag. So, you know, if you're holding something in your hands that could be perceived to be a weapon and just how these things escalate and, not every woman who is stopped by the morality police in Iran ends up arrested or ends up beaten to death. Um, but, but no one <laughs> that shouldn't happen. And I think we can just see and clearly be outraged by it happening in another country, but we don't see that it's happening here. And, you know, these, you know, and it is possible that at some point, um, in the future, Jaheen McMillan's family might get some sort of financial compensation from the police if, if it's found to have been an unjustified killing. But that's not, that that's not, that doesn't make it okay. And I just feel like we need to really name that we police young black men and young men of color just as viciously and um, deadly in just a deadly a way as is happening for young women in Iran. And it's just police officers who pull up and take a look at you. And then they have a narrative in their head about what is threatening to the society. And, and if that narrative in their head and the way you look it, then you just, whatever, you just lose control, you use force. And if it's deadly, it's deadly. And I think, um, until more people who are not directly at risk say not in my name say this is an abomination this is um you know this is blasphemous um this is treason like until we say this system we created it and we can change it but we won't change it as long as the majority of us on some level feel like you know what it's not ideal when it gets out of hand but mostly 
it's okay. And yeah, I just, one more thing, and then I'm done, and I want to hear what you have to say. But I also just think people have such a different reaction if they think that there was a handgun involved. And I just want to say, I just call 100% foul on that because this country loves guns, and we refuse to do any kind of regulation of handguns. Like we flood the streets with handguns. And even the police say they wish there were less handguns. So you're not allowed to flood the streets with handguns. You're not allowed to have, you know, flyers advertising concealed carry courses on every street corner and then say, well, if a young Mac black man was carrying a gun, which we don't know that he was, but if if a young person of color is carrying a gun, then if they get killed, that's their own fault. Like if it's legal to carry a gun, then it's legal to carry a gun. And we still live in a country where what's the name of that young man who walked up to the protests in um, in Oregon and shot two people in the head and the police. Yes, Kyle Rittenhouse. I think that was in Wisconsin. Was underaged, carrying a gun, walked a to the proceed, executed two people and was found not guilty and then celebrated so i mean you can't say well um jaheem mcmillan got what was coming to him but kyle rittenhouse is a hero or you obviously you can say it but then let's just be honest about the fact that we think it's fine for white people to use deadly force and we think that black people just need to shut up wear polos and not then you won't get shot yes um we need to be honest about the number of times a white person commits a crime with a gun, and yet somehow the police manage to take them into custody without killing them. Mm -hmm. It happens a lot. Also, I, I see a connection between those two stories in the, the dominant narrative that's being told about why women in Iran and black men in America are a threat. The narrative seems to be that something has been lost in the culture, in the society. Something has been lost and we need to go back to a different time, right? We need to go back to a time in Iran when women knew their place. We need to go back to a time in America when black people knew their place. Um, and, I, and I think there is a clear effort. I mean, even if this family receives some kind of financial judgment, the effect is still the same. There's a message being sent that proper law and order looks like this. The ability to do this to black people, the mm -hmm. ability to do this to, to women, women, that's how it should be. And if everyone would just say yes to that, then the tension, the stress, the pain, the whatever would go away. The problem, as the narrative goes, is that people are pushing back against this hierarchy we want to create uh, in the various societies and in different ways. And uh, that's just where we are. And, and I remember, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm laughing, but I, 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 it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nervous, sad laughter, but from about age 12, to, to 18, 17, 18, I mean, I, when I say regularly, I mean, you know, um, every three, four months, we'll get a, a talk mm -hmm. by my parents about, okay, if you get stopped by the police, especially when I went off to college and I was driving back and forth a couple mm -hmm. hours, if you get stopped, well, first part of the lecture was, Try not to do these things to get stopped, right? right. right? Um, and there, there's a, either a, a skit or a joke that Dave Chappelle tells about being in a car with a white friend. And his friend is, like, clearly doing drugs, right? And his white friend smarts, he gets stopped, and his white friend is driving, and just smarts off, just mouths off to the police officer. And the police officer says, okay, go, have a good day. And Chappelle says, you know, he he was just astonished. He's like, I, I, I didn't know you could do that. Well, you yeah. can't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, just listening to my friend really grieve about, you know, I, I, you know, I have to have this talk with them. And I had, like, just the, even if 
part of the black tax. Right. And I think that's what, like, just this idea, nobody says to Masa Amini, like, if you had just worn your hijab correctly, none mm-hmm. of this would have happened. Mm-hmm. But but people will absolutely convict black boys for their own murders, right? Like this is your fault because you were in a car with other youth or you were near someone who had a gun or you didn't drop your hands or do whatever. I mean, whatever it is. And the reality is, um, you know, his family says he's unarmed. If I have to pick who I tend to believe, I tend to believe the family. And I just, I, I grieve the fact that this young man is dead and he, I mean, I know that he will be alive with Christ, but he is dead forever on this earth and his family will grieve him forever on this earth. And that we are in a place where just the level of um, distrust and hatred is so high that we see one another as such great threats and that we have to teach young black boys to see their flesh as a threat and a liability instead of uh, the embodiment of the image of God, right? And I think it's too easy for white people to just not, just to dismiss that as like, well, as long as you don't get shot by the police, what do you care? Because the police are keeping you safe. And like, you don't understand that there's different levels of violence. And to feel like I can't walk through the mall without worrying about What's going to happen to me and will I be humiliated and is somebody else going to do something that's going to get me shot and killed? And then, you know, what is the what is the solution like that? That's that is a heavy, heavy violence. Yeah. And there is a psychological, emotional, spiritual cost. Right. And I think if women thought about what would it feel like if there was a regime that came into power here that said, hey, everybody, no matter who you are, you have to cover your hair. And if it slips off even a minute or if I think you are leering at someone or if I think, you know, because in Iran, a woman's sexuality is a corrosive threat. Right. And here a black person's, but particularly a young black boy's perceived violence and power is a is a threat is an inherent threat and this is always the issue of when people are saying well is was the person armed or not and to say you can't be unarmed if your actual physical body is perceived as a weapon and I just think you know part of what needs to happen is if you are a white person a person deemed white you have the ability if you want to to just order your world in such a way where you don't have to know and you don't have to care. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you no longer have that privilege. And so you have to get proximity and listen to, you know, Jaheim McMillan's mother. Like, listen to her, listen to his peers, hear what they have to say, bear witness to their grief and and grieve with them. And, you know, very much secondarily, Grieve for the officer, whoever the officer was, who has now and forever bears the weight of murdering someone. And not just a a someone, a child. A child. A child. Because a 15-year-old boy is a child. A 12-year-old boy, no matter how tall they are or how you perceive their facial features, is a child. And this is um, just something that we... You know, we can't move past it. We can't just be like, well, "Well, I'm sick of marching, so we're over it. Well, and again, it highlights why multi-ethnic churches are important because um, it is very easy, especially for white people, to not see, not hear, and therefore not care because the spaces that you're in are all white. But when you are um, in a multi-ethnic church and you are not only gathered for worship, but you are developing genuine, deep friendships where you share life together and you get to the place where there is real trust to talk about these kind of mm-hmm. issues, you, you cannot help but see. Well, and I just think it's really important to point out that the only violence that was done that day was committed by the police officers, no matter what, if those b- boys, even if they had guns, they did not harm another person. And that is just the American calculus is, well, 
black people are going to kill someone sooner or later. So if we kill them first, oh, well. And that that's just deep in our subconscious, like so deep, like way back generations when we're talking about how, you know, black men can't make eye contact with white women because they're an inherent threat mm -hmm. to femininity. And particularly like as a white woman, just recognizing that whether you asked for it or not, whether you agree with it or not, a lot of the justification for the coded ways that we view and the and the disparate law codes and the practices that have grown up in these institutions are um, done in the name of protecting white women. So it's important just to say this is the same. I mean, it is different, but it is the same. And the intent is it. to create a social hierarchy of power and value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, I think most people have a tremendous amount of, I, I do think that most people have a tremendous amount of appreciation for the difficulty a, a, a law enforcement officer's job is. And most people understand that if there is a person threatening another person with a gun, if there is a person shooting a gun in a public space, you know, then that, the idea that that person might not get out of that situation alive is a tragedy, but you can't expect if you are committing violence to, you know, to not be wounded by that same violence. But it, it's really important that in this country, we've said owning a gun is not a threat and it is not violence. I mean, we've said that and we know that teenage boys in cars do stupid stuff. Like they do stupid stuff and they are exuberant and they're goofing around and they're posturing and doing all kinds of things. And we say, boys will be boys. We said that to a sitting Supreme Court judge who was just a stupid kid showing mm. off and he didn't mean it and he didn't really harm anyone. I mean, like, there's just a huge double standard that is literally killing um, young black men and also propping up a for-profit industry in the prison industrial complex. And we have to see it. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking about. What are you thinking about? I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just thought you were going <laughs> to. Sorry. Awkward. Awkward. We're not professionals here. Yolanda, what are you thinking about? Well, our friend and uh, colleague, Albert Moses, who also pastors a church here in Charlotte, uh, called me and then sent me an article uh, this morning, um, and I've only had an opportunity to glance at it, but the, the article is about uh, pastors navigating, um, seeking to reconcile congregations that are politically divided, and um, uh, the, the, the quote that is... Uh, sticking out in my mind is, and it, this article interviews a, a rabbi, I think a black pastor, and I think a, a white evangelical pastor, but uh, the, the rabbi is quoted as saying, these days in America, we get to know people's politics before we know their humanity. Um, but the, the article uh, really focuses on how pastors, um, are navigating this world of uh, well, this, this 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 season, this this time in our country of being so politically divided. Um, one pastor said that um, because he would not speak out against a certain politician, um, people left the church. And so I'm just wondering how how you navigate that. I mean, I have I have particular things that I do. Like I I try to. Um, focus particularly on the person and work and the, the way of Jesus. Um, I do not, uh, wh whatever, um, whatever candidate I'm going to vote for, uh, I, I, I do not uh, put political bumper stickers on my car. I don't put political signs in my yard. Um, I certainly do not endorse candidates from the pulpit. Um, I, I try to lift up kingdom values as the people of God discern who to vote for. Now, that doesn't mean um, I avoid um, political issues because all things are political. Mm -hmm. I do avoid being partisan. 
I think if you are going to um, preach the way of Jesus, that it does highlight a way that Jesus would affirm and a way that Jesus would not affirm. Mm -hmm. I do think that there are times when we ought to um, take a stand on particular issues, um, but more often than uh, more often more often than not, my way is to try to create an environment in which we can talk. And um, what what I want to get better at is helping the folks at Dorada Church to get curious, mm-hmm. right? So we, we're at a place where we can say, okay, th- this is what I think, but I want to know more about why you think what you think. And we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not a... We have Democrats and Republicans in the congregation. Um, I felt some tension, uh, some pressure from uh, a particular group, uh, those who are a little more conservative. Um, but for the most part, we're in the messy middle, right? Mm-hmm. We are, we're, we're seeking to um, hold our relationships together, um, knowing that there are a number of issues we just don't agree upon. Well, for example, mm-hmm. the, the former president, I know there are some folks who really support him in our congregation, and there are those who do not. There are those who think the election was stolen, and mm-hmm. there are those who think that that is just, um, that is a lie. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are, we're managing to be church together without it devolving into um, demonizing one another. But I do sense the tension. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I think several things. I think unequivocally it is wrong to tell people how to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's wrong no matter who's saying it. I think it's wrong if they're, you're telling people to vote in a way that I personally would vote or you're telling people to vote it's just wrong like our job as a pastor is to proclaim the gospel now I think um, that everything we do we do as unto the Lord so when you go to vote you um, vote according to your values as a disciple of Jesus Christ and obviously in the public debate there are a lot of people um, claiming (laughs) that their side is the sole representation of the values of Jesus Christ. And I want people to think really critically about, um, about those voices. And, um, you know, it's funny, I was telling you on the walk that on Sunday, we are, we're going through the um, Sermon on the Mount right now. And we were kind of midway through the fifth chapter of Matthew, where Jesus, you know, comes to say, I, I haven't come, don't think I've come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. And, you know, do not, not even a, a an aleph or a you know iota will be changed, um, and if you teach anyone to disobey the least commandment, you'll be called least in the commandment. But those who teach people to obey the commandments will be called greatest in the kingdom. And and then and then immediately after that, he goes into the section where he takes the law of Moses and he changes it. Like you've heard it said that Moses says this, but now I tell you that, and it's just not the same. And so you're just like, what in the world? Like you 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 just said. I've come to fulfill this law. I haven't come to change it. And then in the next breath, you're changing it. And like, how does that make sense? And we're just saying that as followers of Jesus, what we believe and ironically what the Bible teaches us is that Jesus is the word of God. So scripture, and you're just not going to, I don't think meet someone with a higher view of the sacredness of scripture than mine. Like it is just the primary way that I experience the sacredness and immediacy and presence of, of God. So I, I just, you know, um, I'm a, like, it's very sacred to me. Like that's how the most, um, immediate way that I am in relationship with Lord is through, through the conduit of the Bible. But that's not the word of God. The word of God is Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and through word, everything was made. And, you know, and in the fullness of time, 
the word and put on flesh and dwelt among us like Jesus is the word of God. And so what Jesus is showing us in this passage is that the word of God can interpret the words of God and um, and also showing us that no matter what you are everyone and especially people who are unaware of it and say they're not doing it everyone is interpreting scripture through the yes. lens of something so if you say i believe in scripture literally you believe in what someone has told you or convinced you that the literal literal interpretation of scripture is and it just that's just true so that every everyone <laughs> is under the influence of someone is interpreting scripture for everyone as followers of Jesus, we need to make sure that someone is Jesus and not a political ideology and not a pastor and not a denomination and not a theological tradition. And all of those things can help us understand the words of scripture, but only Jesus is the word. And we, we are seeking to listen to Jesus and say, what do these words mean? And what are you saying to us? And so I think for me, if I'm preaching the gospel, what I am doing is trusting that the Holy Spirit is interpreting the words of the gospel to people. And I'm encouraging people to say like, hey, work it out with fear and trembling. And I would say, you know, when you are, the world will tell you when you go into the voting booth, vote your own best interest. And Jesus would say to you, vote your neighbor's best interest, right? And so, you know, that's a framework, but I wouldn't, and there are just certain issues that are claimed to solely be the purview of politics um, that Jesus absolutely says, you know, this is how my followers will be. Um, and I also just think ultimately what is really important, and this is really counterintuitive, um, but these political races are presented to us as matters of utmost importance. This is the way. <laughs> that the kingdom of God either will or will not come. Like, And if you don't vote a certain way, then it's going to be Armageddon. It's going to be right, really like, bad. Well, and yeah, that, that this is what you need to vote in this way or else the will of God mm -hmm. will not be powerful enough to overcome right. sin, right? And I just think it's really important that Jesus, if Jesus had wanted to set up an earthly government system, he'd have done it. And that is just not that I'm not saying it's wrong to be a politician and I'm not saying that it is wrong to be interested in politics. I don't think either of those things are true. I think anything we do, we can do it unto the Lord and you can certainly serve, be a public servant um, for Jesus' sake. And you can certainly, and I hope, you know, people will be called to the political life for Jesus' sake. But knowing that the kingdom of God is not coming through human institutions or human politics. And so you can, you know, which is then what frees you up not to compromise, right? You can just say like, I'm going to speak this truth. I'm going to make this choice and win or lose. It doesn't matter because God is not on the ballot. Now that doesn't give me an excuse to be indifferent to the oppression um, that might be perpetrating against perpetrated against my neighbor. It doesn't give me an excuse to become indifferent to injustice, but it does give me the freedom to say, you know, I, this is the this is the way of Jesus, and even if that becomes literally outlawed, I, I'm going to walk this way anyway. And if someone, in the name of politics, were to stand up and say the Bible says X or you can't be of Jesus follower and be a Republican or you can't be a Jesus follower and be a Democrat, then I think it is really important that we address not the partisanship, but the um, idolatry of elevating, of, of making Jesus the means to an end instead of the end itself. And so I think like once you frame it in all of those ways, I, I don't experience it as difficult um, because, you know, we have an upcoming decision in the church about a um, housing project, but to say, look, like we are starting from the place of unity because we all agree that we want to do the Lord's will. We all want to be faithful. We all want the kingdom to come. We, we all want it to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That That's our place of unity. Now, we only have our own minds and our own hearts in order to discern what that looks like for ourselves. And so, you know, 
we we are going to work it out with fear and trembling, but with an awareness that if I don't get my way, it is actually possible that God is still on the throne. <laughs> and so I don't have to despair, right? So I, and, you know, even if the Lord's, you know, certainly not everything that happens in the world is the Lord's will, but even if something happens that is against the Lord's will, I still have hope and trust in the providence of our liberating shalom God. And, and, and if someone's in my community and I think to myself, well, how can they love Jesus and think X or think Y or think Z? I can also just say, well, I trust that the Holy Spirit has called us together and has put us together in this community for this season for a reason. And so I'm going to get curious about what kind of a relationship I'm called to have with this person and what does it look like for me to love and be faithful to this brother and sister. And um, this is the last thing I will say. Is, uh, I was just talking to someone recently who was just sort of noticing and really wondering at how they are in the Grove community. Well, maybe we already talked about this last week. That They're in the Grove community and all of a sudden they don't have the same kind of political unity that they've always had in previous churches. And what, is that, what does that mean? And do I belong here? And I would just say, you know, there's a way that we can believe the dominant voices in culture that say, as long as you vote like me, we're on the same team or we have unity and that's actually not true <laughs> and so to be able to say some of the superficial not insignificant but superficial markers of identity we do not have in common so what does it look like to bear with one another in love not ignoring <laughs> but with that difference that that's just a deeper level of walking with Jesus than sort of saying like, okay, well here in my community, we all agree X and we all agree Y. So I'm clearly in the right space. Like Jesus is a reconciler. And so if the person who you disagree with, maybe they are completely captivated by sin. Well, what's your obligation to them? They're not your enemy because our enemies are not flesh and blood, flesh and blood, they're powers and principalities. So even if they're a hundred percent captivated by an idolatrous lie, then what is your obligation to that brother or sister in Christ as one who has graciously received the truth from Jesus, not because you deserve it, but because God is so great. Well, your obligation is to walk with that brother or sister in love and look for an opportunity to come into authentic relationship with them, which will mean opening your heart about your real life and your most sacred truths. And it probably will mean at some point conflict and conflict isn't bad. Conflict it's just scary. is scary. It's scary and it's unfamiliar, but conflict is where we grow. So that's, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Well, I've been asking myself what story I want to tell when this season is over. When this, um, because I, I do think that this this fever um, of political tension that we're in, at some point, I don't know how long it will take, it will break. And what story do we want to tell as a congregation? What story do I want to tell as a pastor? And um, I want it to be a story of faithfulness, not only, you know, right, right understanding of issues, right. but also faithfulness in terms of how I, how we responded to other people. I don't right. want to be right on an issue, but my attitude, my actions toward others is wrong. I right. don't want to be, okay, right. I've, I've, I have this this truth, I understand the issue in a biblical, biblically, theologically correct way, and yet I'm I'm mean spirited. I'm angry. I'm prideful. I'm, I'm prideful, and I alienate right? myself. Like yes. we were talking about this on Sunday too. That you can be right and not be righteous, right? right. And we want to say that righteousness to Jesus just looks like thinking the right thing in your head, and the reality is. What we see in the person of Jesus, what we see in the word made flesh is Jesus, Jesus's righteousness being expressed by being in self-giving relationship with people who were not right. And that by that self-giving relationship, he modeled that higher righteousness that he's calling the people to when he says your righteousness has to exceed the Pharisees. The Pharisees were just like, we're right. And if you're like us, 
we're righteous and you can be righteous too. And if you're not like us, then like bump you too bad, too bad, too bad. You're going to whatever, never experience the salvation or goodness of God. And Jesus is saying, that's not the kind of righteousness I'm calling you to. It's not about whether you're right. It's about whether you're righteous and the, what real God's righteousness looks like is not moral purity. It's not even John the Baptist saying, you know, I'm here and give away your second cloak and stop, you know, this justice sold, get your act right justice wise. It is a higher righteousness that it is about seeking healing and reconciliation, not just of your neighbor, not just of people who are oppressed, but of enemies and oppressors. And not everybody believes in that. And that's fine. But that to me is the scandal of the cross. Jesus is not on the cross just suffering for the sake of the oppressed and of the righteous. Jesus suffers for the unrighteous. So a lot of people don't want to suffer and risk and sacrifice for the sake of unrighteous people. I respect that, but Jesus did. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have to understand that is the manifestation of the glory of God. Which is why violence, the violence in Iran, the violence we see in this country will not win. It is on the way out. Right. And this idea that we say that violence is justified as long as the person who suffers violence is deserved it, like that is an anti-Christ ideology because Christ is not calling us to righteous violence. Christ is calling us to be shalom peacemakers and peacemakers do not work violence even against those who do violence. Like that's just not the way of Christ. And it's something practical. I don't know if this will help anyone else, but this helps me. When I'm in that moment of being face to face with someone who deeply, (laughs) passionately disagrees with me and I with them, one of the things I do um, is I, I take a deep breath, like physically get it, get control, because, uh, you know, your fight or flight response mm-hmm. kicks in. And then I say to myself, just internally, I'm okay. Right. I'm okay. Because when we get to that place of conflict, of disagreement, we, we the temptation is to externalize. Mm-hmm. Something is wrong with you, right? right? You got to change your mind. But really what's happening, there there's um. There's, there's also this internal conflict. Maybe I'm not okay. Maybe I'm not. If I continue to engage with you, maybe I won't be okay. Right, and right. so I have to just take a deep breath, remind myself I can engage with this person. Like as a pastor, okay, you know, all kinds of voices and fears come up. Okay, this person might get so angry that they, they form a coalition of congregants mm-hmm. to get me voted out of this position, right? And I've got to pay bills and right, all those kinds of fears. Also, the fears that any human being has of wanting to be liked and loved and, and welcome and included yeah. and not rejected, right? So I just, I try in that moment to just get a grip on all of those things and to remember um, um, the, the, what you just said about uh, the, the coming of the kingdom, the sovereignty of it's God. It's not There's at stake. This is not at stake. Right. And I think that's, that's, you know, why Paul can say, you know, I've been pressed on on every side and I've been overwhelmed. I mean, you know, all I've been going through this huge, um, you know, the, uh, this huge persecution when, when John is writing the revelation and he's writing it to churches who are, who are undergoing you know, great suffering and oppression. And he's saying to them, look, like what you visibly see is not the eternal reality that's all around you. So like, take a breath, like the very worst things that this world has to threaten you with can happen. Mm -hmm. And your salvation is not at stake. And, and I would just say, I'm very cognizant of the fact that like, I have a lot of privileges. I'm saying these things. I do think that this is just core, ironically, orthodox, Christian theology of the cross. Um, But I understand that how we walk that out could be very different depending on just the life that we're in and the kind of power that we have and the kind of 
wounds that we have. And like Jesus doesn't force anyone to, we aren't forced or compelled to suffer for the sake of our oppressors. We are not forced to do that. Um, you, you, you choose to work, walk into that work willingly or not. And like, there's a, um, a pastor who's leading a second hour um, series of teachings at the Grove in October. And he's a black man and just talking about like one of his core values is racial reconciliation. And so he tells a story about how he was invited, um, contracted to just sort of do a, a workshop in a community where children were being actively high school students were being actively recruited by the KKK and that when he was, you know, they said, we, we want to escort you into town and back out of town. And when he was in that space, he's looking out and there's somebody in the audience who's holding a rope. And by the end of his presentation, he's holding a noose. Right. And, and is like turned it into a noose. And, and, um, the Ron McClellan, pastor Ron is telling the story and people saying like, what are you doing here? Like, why were you in that space? And he's saying like, no, I, wanted to be in that space. I don't have to be in that space. I was called to that space and I feel alive in that space. And so I know that there are some people who will say quite understandably, I am not obligated to do that. And that is a hundred percent true. Um, that is a hundred percent true. Certainly not in a secular sense. You are, you're not obligated to serve the spiritual needs of your oppressors. A hundred percent agree. And in the body of Christ, you are not obligated to do that. I think what we are obligated to do is tell the truth about the way of Jesus, right? So not to say Jesus isn't interested in the salvation of my oppressors. That's not true. Mm -hmm. Now, you may or may not be called to engage in that work in particular ways. And I 100% respect that. But Jesus died for unrighteous people. That is the scandal of the cross. And I get it. If you don't like that, I oftentimes in my flesh don't like it, but that is the hope of the world. And that's what we have to wrestle with when we're thinking about how we vote or how we interact with people of a different political ideology is to say, you know, the threat is these people are unrighteous. And the answer is maybe they are. And like the way of, Je might not be your way, but the way of Jesus mm -hmm. is self-giving love for the unrighteous. If you don't believe in that, I respect it. But don't pretend that that's not the righteousness of Jesus. If you miss it is. that, you don't believe the gospel. Right. Now, will it still turn the world upside down and challenge and change all those systems? A hundred percent. It's not suffering for the sake of the unrighteous and propping up, you know, these destructive systems and ideologies. That's not true. They are all passing away. Right. But um, we can't overcome the world with the world's own narrative. Like, the narrative of the world is if we could just control or get rid of those people, everyone yes. would be fine. And what we're saying is we were made for shalom peace. We were made for interdependent flourishing. And that is what we are returning to. And those of us who follow Jesus are saying, I'm scared. I don't like it. It doesn't seem fair, but I get that that's what you're up to. So lead me into that, Lord, and show me where I'm holding back and, and change my heart and help me train my own mind and eyes to see through your eyes and certainly not through the loudest religious or secular voices in the room. So, okay, I'm really done now. <laughs> I was about to ask you, what are you preaching? I, um, I don't know. I, you don't know. Well, I'm preaching, I'm, I'm preaching through the, um, the Beatitudes, right? No, I've already done the Beatitudes. I'm I'm starting. I'm supposed I'm to sorry, start in Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on yes. the Mount. So I'm supposed to start in chapter six on Sunday, and I will confess to you that off the top of my head, I cannot remember exactly which part of the Sermon on the Mount comes next. But I am tempted, because of a lot of reasons that we discussed on the walk, I am tempted to double back and pick out a certain one of the um, antitheses. Um, that I just sort of read them, but didn't unpack them at all. And I'm really tempted to go back, but I just, I need to, I'm just going to, I'm going to pray about it and seek the Lord about it. Cause I, um, praying about what you're going to preach is that's a good idea. It is an essential idea. And I'm embarrassed to say for how many years I played mm. lip service to mm. that, mm. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I, I'm not, I'm not sure yet. It, it will be on the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm not sure where, what about you? 
Well, we are having um, someone from the Grove. Oh, that's right. Yes. That's right. We're having uh, Nicole Thompson come and um, preach. I'm taking this Sunday off uh, to do some other uh, things that need to be done in the ministry of Dorita Church, and so I'm grateful that she's going to uh, come and bring a word. And um, I, I, I shared with a few folks that uh, she was coming, and uh, they are very excited. So uh, in my flesh, I'm trying not to feel a certain kind of way, <laughs> right? <laughs> Wait, I, I mean, I'm glad you're you're happy she's coming, but don't get too happy. I mean, you know? yeah, I'm Come right on, here, right? friends. Yes, right? You know? no, no, she is an <laughs> amazing anointed preacher, and I'm really excited about what God is doing in her life and what God is calling her to. So that's really, that's really beautiful. I know. Well, do, I don't think I've told the story on this podcast of I got really sick on a Sunday morning. I, I was on September 11th, like so sick that I was just like lying on the floor of my office and I just could not, I could not stand up. Like it came out of nowhere and I just, I didn't know what to do. And so I called Nicole and I just said like, I'm really sorry, but I can't, I can't preach today. Like, can you please come in and preach? And I, and what I said to her is, Hey, just, just read the sermon on the Mount because this is like, it is a sermon. It is a sermon. And also, I called her maybe an hour before worship started. Wow. Maybe. Like, probably, like, the short side of the hour. And I had been planning to preach on um, Hagar and Sarai, and she knew it from reading, uh, and she just thought about it. And then she just stood up and preached this amazing sermon, and she, <laughs> she said to the congregation that everyone, I, I mean, it's just so much of her words keep popping up in people's conversations, which is just it's a living word, right? And um, but what she said to them in the beginning is, if if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And so she just like slayed. And um, so yeah. yes, I I listened, and it was a great sermon. I yeah. know, I know. Yeah. I was like, I I I thought, oh, I'm going to preach this next week, and then I thought, no, I'm not. <laughs> it's been done. <laughs> it's no need to do it again. Anyway, so that's exciting. Well, uh, the word of the week. If you get ready. If you stay ready, you don't don't have have to to get get ready. ready. Right. right, There you go. Well, thank you all for listening. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derrida Presbyterian Church, it's D-E-R-I-T-A, Pres. No, the new website is (laughs) www.faithlife. No, okay, sorry. All right, gosh. Don't just stare at me. You can stop. I was going to let you work it out. It's deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. See, that's all I needed. Just say it with me. deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. You can worship with the good people, the saints of Derida, um, and hear a word by Nicole Thompson this Sunday at 11 o'clock. You can check out their website. You can check out their uh, the worship podcast, which is on the um, Podbean website, Derrida Church um, podcast, and you can also check out their YouTube channel for sermons. And if you want to find out what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can join us for worship at 10 a.m. on Sundays, and you can check out The Grove Church podcast on iTunes or, you know, wherever, and our YouTube channel for um, messages or worship with us on the live stream on Facebook. So thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you next week.